Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's signature podcast on the big events in the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and this week I'll be looking at Sudan, where a bloody power struggle between the country's top military leaders has entered its sixth day. Successive truces have failed to hold, as troops loyal to Sudan's de facto ruler, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the Rapid Support Force, led by General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hemeti, battle it out on the streets and from the air. The UN says at least 400 people have died and that 3,500 have been injured since fighting broke out in the capital Khartoum. The roots of the conflict run deep in Africa's third largest country, whose Red Sea ports have long been coveted by international players. With us here today to explain the intricacies of Sudan is Cameron Hudson, a former advisor to multiple US envoys to that country, who is a senior associate at the Africa Programme at the Center for Strategic and International Studies a think tank based in Washington, D.C. Welcome to our program, Cameron. It's great to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. So can you just give us sort of a sense of what's happening currently on the ground in Sudan? Well, um, it's a very dynamic environment right now, unfortunately. Um, both the SAF and the RSF appear to be engaged uh, on multiple fronts throughout the city uh, using multiple tactics. So using both aerial bombardment, uh, going after each other's uh, infrastructure, but also what appears to be more a street level fighting, uh, close quarters contact between these forces going you know, house to house, street to street, neighborhood to neighborhood. So uh, we get reports throughout the course of the day of the fight essentially moving across uh, across areas of the city at, at, at various times. The fighting seems to be going on virtually 24 hours a day. Residents of Khartoum reporting, you know, hearing the gunfighting um, and hearing uh, bombardment, you know, all through the night, certainly uh, during the day as well. So, um, and of course, we're now getting reports of the fighting moving into different parts of the city. So even areas of the city that we thought were uh, untouched or had been untouched, um, are now you know seeing the fighting spread to those areas. So that's a real danger as well because um, you know people had been trying to move to areas of the city that they thought were were more safe, and now I think they're finding out that 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 they might have to yet move again uh, because those parts of town are no longer uh, safe. So um, that's obviously creating um, a great deal of fear uh, among among the civilians who are trapped there. Yeah, we're hearing that there's a, a, a humanitarian disaster looming, if it's not already in play, uh, and the airport is closed, so very hard also for aid to come in. Um, we also hear that the fighting has spread to other parts of Sudan, is that correct? Absolutely. Obviously, we have I have we have a less uh, easy time assessing the level of fighting in other cities, just because there are there, those cities are largely cut off, but um, we are hearing about fighting in the east of the country, in the north of the country, in the west, in the Darfur region, uh, and even further in the south, in the central parts of the country. Uh, I think it's fair to say everywhere where there is a SAF 
military base. There have been attacks on that base by the RSF, and those attacks have spread into neighboring uh, cities and, and towns. Um, we are hearing uh, as well that these these towns and, and, and cities are changing hands. So one day uh, I get a report that the that the staff might control uh, El Fasher, and the next day it might be the RSF controlling El Fasher. And so um, it's pretty clear that these that these fights are active and ongoing. Um, and and again, we have yet to really see a lot of images to help assess the level of damage, destruction, or casualties from those cities. Um, I think it's fair to say, though, that it's quite high at this point. Um, you know, just going and touching on the civilian casualty rate. I mean, I think we're at around 400 right now officially. But you know, we have to remember that now the majority of hospitals in Khartoum are closed, uh, either destroyed, damaged by fighting, or closed because people simply can't get there. Doctors and nurses can't get there. So I think we should expect that the the death toll is substantially higher than the official numbers that are being reported. And again, those numbers are really only in the city of Khartoum and the surrounding areas. We have no a clear window into what those casualty rates might look like in other uh, parts of the country. So the protagonists here are on the one hand, the Sudanese army uh, led by General Burhan and then his erstwhile ally who helped him seize power, um, Dagalo or Hemeti, General Hemeti, who has his rapid support forces. Can you just tell us a little bit more about who these people are and, you know, how do you see this playing out? Do you believe that this war can end conclusively anytime soon? And who are uh, the other protagonists? Because we also hear that there are factions within the army and within the uh, rapid support forces that are also opposed to the people leading these sides. And then we also hear about external actors. So could you just sort of describe the architecture here to us? Sure. Uh, so I guess if you if we kind of move from concentric circles, you know, the, 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 the inner circle there is, as you suggest, General Burhan, the commander of the Sudan Armed Forces and General Hemeti, the commander of the RSF. General Burhan and, and frankly, the institution he represents see themselves as constitutional officers of the state. They see themselves as, as a professional national army, um, even though I think many Sudanese would see them, uh, you know, as a, as, a, uh, as a militant group themselves because they have preyed on the, the people of Sudan for so long. They have, uh, you know, again, the, the army paints itself as a professional army, but we know from fighting in South Sudan for many years and in Darfur, that this is an army that has not respected the, the, the laws of war, has not respected the human rights and civil rights of, of any citizens under its, uh, under its watch. And so as much as it tries to portray itself as a legitimate army, I think uh, the track record speaks to, to one of abuse and uh, persecution. Uh, they have ruled uh, along with military dictators, the country for the majority of Sudan's um, history. Um, but again, they see themselves, I think they hold themselves to a standard that they, they frankly don't really meet. Um, they have received a lot of formal military training, however, from Egypt and other, you know, regional, regional Arab states. Um, so they do see themselves, uh, you know, as a professional force, unlike uh, the RSF. 
the RSF grew out of uh, the John Joweed militia that was used by the Darfur government during the uh, sorry the Bashir government during the Darfur uh, conflict to essentially carry out a kind of scorched earth campaign, um, you know, assembled from uh, a series or a variety of Arab militias that were already active um, in those in those areas. General Hemeti kind of came up through those those ranks. He is Darfuri uh, with a Chadian mother, um, like 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 many in that in that region. He um, is very, I think, entrepreneurial in the way that he has used the RSF, I guess would be a kind of a charitable way to say it. He um, used his command of the RSF not only to uh, enforce the central government's rule in Darfur, but on the side, he uh, offered it as a mercenary force to regional states. So, so the force was deployed uh, most recently to Yemen, but al also Libya, doing the bidding of other uh, Gulf actors in those countries. Um, he has used the force uh, to extend uh, a business empire largely across Darfur and northern Sudan, which now includes substantial gold mining uh, areas of the country. So he's responsible for a lot of the, uh, the smuggling of gold out of the country, which has made him fabulously wealthy. Um, and more recently, he has, he has created a kind of a business relationship with the Wagner Group uh, out of Russia, uh, which is also contributing to his wealth, but more importantly, his power. And he's used that wealth and power to assemble uh, this very large army. Uh, it's reported that he pays you know, higher salaries than the staff. Uh, he's been able to recruit very heavily using that wealth from across Darfur. Um, and I think the interesting thing about General Hemeti now is in the last you know, sort of year or so since the coup d'etat, uh, that toppled the civilian government in October of 2021, he has been trying to position himself as a Democrat and as a kind of populist leader. You know, the tension in Sudan for, for many decades has always existed between the kind of Arab elites in Khartoum, which have run the, the, the politics of the country, and the kind of marginalized peripheral areas of the country that have minority tribes. Um, and so here you have Himeti trying to essentially position himself as, as the leader of these downtrodden peripheral areas now, and essentially saying that, uh, that this is, you know, this, that, that him coming to Khartoum is the rise of the periphery to reclaim its, its political authority that it's been denied for so long. So he's, he's really trying to associate himself and essentially, um, you know, uh, um, whitewash his reputation as a as a warlord and militia leader who essentially committed the worst abuses and crimes against those same peripheral areas that he now claims to represent. So these are really the two, you know, institutions and individuals who are um, who are fighting this war right now. Um, I guess you know they have a series of outside supporters. Um, who they have been, you know, I think cultivating in the last several months uh, in, I think, anticipation of this kind of conflict breaking out. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, the RSF has a, a kind of formal relationship with the Wagner group, um, mm -hmm. but they also um, have close ties to Chadian rebel groups. Uh, they have close ties to the Haftar militia uh, in Libya. They have been trying to kind of cultivate uh, rebel forces that might also exist in South Sudan and in Central African Republic. Um, so they are 
again, they are a militia army looking to tap into uh, the many other uh, militia and rebel groups that exist, you know, throughout the Horn of Africa, quite frankly, all of these countries that we're talking about that neighbor the country um, have some kind of uh, active rebellion going on in there. And so uh, there has been a real effort to, to, to find allies there. Um, General Hameti has also got allies in the Gulf. Again, he, he, he fought on their behalf in uh, the wars in Yemen and Libya. And so we don't know exactly uh, if he's activated those relationships in this fighting now, but 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 he has them. And then, of course, on the SAF side, I think the biggest backer to the Sudanese armed forces is the Egyptian military. Uh, General Burhan reportedly went to military academy with General Sisi. Um, there's a very close operational relationship between the two countries. Um, and so I think that, you know, they are they are looking for that support right now and trying to activate it in many ways. So um, you said that Hemeti is trying to portray himself as this, you know, the champion of the downtrodden. By the way, are both of these men, I think, Arabs? Well, certainly General Burhan is, is Arab and um, General Hemeti uh, on his father's side is Darfuri um, uh, and on his mother's side is Chadian. I don't think that he would be considered Arab by the uh, by the Sudanese standard. And again, I think there's some there's a lot of chauvinism that exists between these two individuals and between the, the, their institutions. Right. Um, the SAF, I mean, this fight was triggered by a political discussion about the terms under which the RSF would be incorporated into the SAF to form a new national army. And, you know, there were hardline elements within the SAF, uh, largely Islamist elements, we believe, that were bristling at the idea that this, uh, this sort of tribal militia group from the periphery would be incorporated into the professional army of, of Sudan. And so there was resistance from the, the army side, but there was also resistance from the, from the RSF side of being folded into the military. Because again, they are looked down upon uh, by the professional uh, military forces, uh, but also they get uh, a higher salary, they have higher ranks, um, you know, and, and they risk losing that by being incorporated into the military. So there's really no love lost between these two individuals or institutions. And again, it goes back to your original question. I think that's why the prospect of this reaching some kind of mediated solution or even ceasefire in the short term feels very unlikely because this this fight has been building for a very, very long time. And what lies at the heart of this fight are real cultural, historical, and tribal differences between these two institutions, which are doing the fighting right now, which frankly can't be papered over through a political discussion. Can you unpack the Islamist component from for us, please? Because it's kind of interesting that, you know, the the sort of differences are are framed in that way. So there is an ideological component. Then is is it is there? Because I mean, my sense was very much, you know, I know very little about Sudan, but you know, from what we read, it sounds more of a power struggle, a raw power struggle over the, you know, the spoils. I think that's right. I think that there's a when I talk about the kind of Islamist core at the staff. What I really mean by that is 
the remnants of the Bashir regime. I think that the Bashir regime, certainly it, it came to power in 1989 as part of an, an Islamic revolution, uh, right? And, and, and even at that time, Sudan was considered a center of political Islam in the, in the Arab world, right? And there were, you know, preeminent thinkers and scholars uh, that were driving that revolution. So I think when, when Bashir came in, uh, in 1989, there was an ideological component to uh, what was then the National Islamic Front turned into the National Congress Party later on. I think that Bashir corrupted that that thought um, through through corrupt and, and kleptocratic behavior uh, over the course of 30 years in power. And so uh, the ideological underpinnings of the Islamist movement in Sudan have been long abandoned and betrayed, even though those uh, those elements continue to uh, to, to to sort of uh, couch themselves as 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 committed Islamists. Um, I think that what we're really talking about here are kind of um, remnants of the former regime trying to reinstall the former regime in power. I think the interesting thing about that is when the coup happened, when General Burhan and General Hamedi, in a kind of marriage of convenience, I think more than an, more than any kind of alliance, overthrew the civilian government of Prime Minister Abdullah Hamduk in in October of twenty one. Um, they, I think, quickly realized that this was a deeply unpopular move that they had miscalculated um, and and were faced with a new uh, protest movement. They, in fact, reinvigorated the civilian protest movement uh, by, by taking this coup. And so each leader took different steps to create internal alliances for themselves. As I said, the RSF under General Hemeti essentially then kind of went into... Um, went into to high gear to portray General Hameti as being an ally of the revolution, as pro-democracy and as bringing, uh, you know, peripheral interests to the center. General Burhan, having, you know, not the kind of charisma or the or the kind of populist appeal, he activated the Islamist movement in the country. He acted, he went back to the kind of former regime elements who he knew, who he had worked with under the Bashir regime, and he brought them in to the power equation in a way to help build, um, to build support for what the military had done. The problem with that strategy was he unleashed a force that he ultimately could not control. He could, he relied on in the near term to help him build uh, some some degree of popular support, and the Islamists were able to put people in the street and rally for the for the military and make it appear at least for the cameras that uh, that that he had a basis of support for taking over the country. Uh, but in fact, he has become, I think, a victim and a hostage to these groups. And so what we heard, certainly in the last weeks leading up to the outbreak of violence, was as General Burhan was negotiating with international mediators and the RSF about the terms under which these two uh, armed forces would be incorporated into one, what he was hearing from the hardline elements in the military and in society was that he risked himself being overthrown by those elements if he conceded anything to the RSF. And so I think at the end of the day, he became quite captured by this hardline force that he was relying on for support.
Well, looking at the region more broadly, we do see a pattern, don't we, of, you know, people uh, claiming power, governments being elected democratically, I mean, the whole Arab Spring thing, and it's now just turned on its head in Egypt, now we see it in Tunisia, and perhaps, you know, some would argue the reason this is happening is also not only because people are disaffected with the, their new rulers who are meant to bring them freedom and prosperity. But equally, um, as these rulers turned more despotic, um, the West largely ignored what was going on. Uh, to what extent do you think that the international community, and you know, I would say the United States in particular, has a hand in, in the situation today in Sudan? Listen, the international community certainly has a hand in the situation. I think that um, it's probably errors of omission and not errors of commission, if I were to you know, say it that way. The international community led by Washington, but including uh, the quad grouping of the UK, the, uh, the, the, the Saudis and the Emiratis, have been at the heart uh, of these political talks since December. Uh, they have been pushing for a political resolution. They have been uh, organizing a mediation uh, and supporting a mediation that was technically led by the United Nations, the African Union, and the Inter International uh, Governmental Authority on Development, EGAD, the regional grouping. Um, so there has been a process uh, for, of political talks uh, and a structure to those talks. And there has been outside diplomatic support ongoing. So we were not absent. I think partly what has enabled this is some miscalculations on the part of the international community. Um, Well-intentioned, but miscalculations nonetheless. Um, and I think that there are, um, there are a couple that I would, that I would point to. Um, number one, I've been personally very critical of the U.S. for not sanctioning either General Burhan or General Hameti before we got to this point. Uh, we know, for example, that in 2019, when the peaceful civilian protest was broken up and several hundred uh, sit-in protesters were killed in the streets by the RSF, that was the opportunity to sanction um, General Hameti. Not out of retribution, because I think in retrospect, by not sanctioning him, we allowed for his political survival. We allowed for him to reinvent himself as this populist figure that I've been talking about. We did not remove him from the political stage in a way that we could have if we had sanctioned him. Similarly, when General Burhan uh, led the coup that overthrew the civilian government, we didn't sanction him. We didn't sanction those around him who, who led that coup with him. Um, and again, that was the moment in time to say, you've lost your legitimacy as a leader. We're going to sanction you, your companies, and your people. And we are going to take you off of this political stage. Right. So we didn't do that at either time that we had. And then in December of uh, 2022, just five months ago, being the need for a civilian government, we wrote a political framework agreement. The, the, the international community assisted in writing a political framework agreement that would ultimately restore civilian rule in the country. But it gave the military and the RSF an equal seat at the table. So uh, with civilian leaders, right? We acknowledged that they were the true power holders in the country um, and we gave them a seat at the table. So not only did we, did we not 
take them off of the political stage when they were most deserving of it and we had the most justification to do it, we have since elevated them in the political conversation. And so I think that um, we have been very much involved and engaged, but I think in retrospect, we have a lot to look back on to say that we got it wrong. We made some serious miscalculations that enabled these two leaders and their institutions to continue to play the role in the country that they were playing. And I think we can go back and look and, and see, you know, were we fooled uh, into thinking that they were genuine when they told us that they were serious about a transition to civilian government uh, and civilian rule? Was that all just uh, talk to avoid, uh, uh, you know, the hard decision making and compromises that would have to be made ultimately to bring about that kind of outcome. I think in retrospect, that's been the case that I think that they have not been genuine. I think that the international community has been hoodwinked uh, by these leaders. And now we're faced with the consequences of that. Well, as you mentioned in a previous conversation, though, one of the problems is that on the one hand, uh, you know, you can sanction these governments, uh, cut off aid, indeed, as the U.S. did uh, after that coup, but that these two men are individually so wealthy uh, that, that you know, they can survive all of that. So how do you square that circle? And so where is the leverage now, here and now, that can help stop this conflict? Well, it's true that they're both individually wealthy and institutionally wealthy, but um, I think that sanctions could have done a lot to make them more difficult for the international community to work with and deal with and to legitimize. And I think that's that's really the point that I'm trying to make here is by not delegitimizing them when we should have, we have made them a part of the political process that maybe they would still have been a part of the political process, but they both see their own survival going forward in the political arena. They both believe, I think, I mean, certainly General Hamedi believes that he could be president of Sudan. Um, and I think that there would be nothing worse for the region than having uh, someone like uh, General Hamedi, uh, you know, transformed into a political leader uh, who tries to present himself as a as a civilian uh, uh, politician. So by not sanctioning them, I think it's 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 much more about the stain and the stigma that comes along with those sanctions as it, as it is the the actual uh, financial pain that might be inflicted on them um and then of course the way forward i think is it's it's really difficult to say we're you know we're 6 days into the fighting uh, on the ground right now um promises of ceasefires haven't held for even a few minutes uh in the time that they've been promised so i think that there's really absolutely no sense that either of these two individuals want uh, to want to want to lay down their arms right, right now, uh, certainly not until at least one side gains a tactical advantage over the other. When that happens, there might be an opportunity to try to uh, press for, for for a ceasefire. But the problem with that is, of course, that what will be the the civilian toll to achieve that? You know, how many people are going to have to die? How much destruction is there going to have to be before one side decides that it's ready to talk? And I think that's the that's the fear that we all that we all have right now. Well, let me conclude uh, by asking you a question that I should have actually kicked off with: Why does Sudan matter? Why are we so exercised? Because after all, there are so many wars that have been grinding on in Africa, causing terrible misery for decades, and nobody seems to care. But Everyone seems to care about Sudan. What is at stake here? 
Well, I think that Sudan uh, certainly sits astride a very strategic region of the world. It has a very long Red Sea coast. Um, Sudan has a history as a terrorist state. We can't we can't forget that. Um, Sudan is a incredibly large country. It's a country of 50 million people. Um, and so an exodus of this country would spill over into the entire region. It sits in the middle of the Horn of Africa region, which as I described, has uh, rebel forces and militia forces arrayed across it. And so the idea of activating rebellion, not just in one country, but in six or seven countries that border Sudan, um, you know, you could very quickly see this spreading uh, like a wildfire across the Horn of Africa that would touch Egypt, that would touch, you know, up to the Mediterranean, that would touch, uh, of course, the Red Sea. Um, so strategically, I think uh, Sudan is, is um, a huge concern. But I also think that given the investment that Washington and the international community have made, frankly, over the past 20 plus years of trying to end civil wars in Sudan, I think that um, the failure now to prevent a worst case scenario from, from happening, um, I think is really a stain on the international community that a country with that level of diplomatic support and investment still can't afford, uh, still can't manage a way to not go over the cliff, um, I think is a is a terrible narrative for us um, and and for the you know a message for the for the wider world. So I think that you know that's why Sudan um, you know matters. Cameron Hudson, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. And this brings us to the end of this episode of On the Middle East. For those of you celebrating Eid al-Futr, I wish you and yours a happy holiday and look forward to being with you again very soon. Thank you and goodbye.